Well, I don't know about you, but I get pretty frustrated trying to work out uh, what sort of food I should eat to be healthy. I'll read uh, an article that says uh, eating uh, one thing, and then I'll read uh, something else that says something uh, completely different. Thirty years ago, we were told that eating uh, fat and cholesterol was to blame for um, all our health problems. More recently, uh, sugar's been uh, blamed. And uh, I read something that says uh, drinking coffee is really good for your heart health, and that makes me happy because I love drinking coffee. Uh, but then I read something that says, no, no, coffee is really bad for your sleep and other things, and that makes me sad. Um, it's not just food, though, is it? Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're voting in a referendum, and uh, both uh, people on both the yes and no side of the argument have uh, been accusing the other of being dishonest, of not telling the truth. Uh, we know that truth is important, and we really want to know what is true, but it can be really hard to find, can't it? Who should we believe? What should we believe? Uh, today we're going to continue looking at Peter's second letter and in the passage we just had read to us we'll see what the Bible says about itself. What is the Bible? Why should we believe what it says? Because it says some pretty incredible things, doesn't it? Uh, just thinking about what we heard last week in uh, the first half of chapter 1, let me remind you of a couple of the highlights. From verse 4 we have uh, the promise of participation in the divine nature. Verse 9, we have been cleansed of our past sins. And verses 10 and 11, for if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. Extraordinary claims, extraordinary if true. But is it true? Is it too good to be true? That's what Peter, uh, in the second half of uh, chapter 1, wants to remind his readers of, the truth of these extraordinary claims. He wants to remind them of what he has already taught them and that they have already accepted as true. He wants to remind them so that they won't be led astray by those who don't speak the truth. We'll find out about those people next week in uh, chapter 2. But today we're looking at uh, the second half of chapter 1 and we're going to see what Peter says in three sections. Uh, first, we'll see that the Bible is written truth. Uh, second, we'll see that it is eyewitness truth. And third, we'll see that it is God's truth. Now, our first point uh, that the Bible is written truth might seem obvious to you. Uh, you might be thinking, well, of course, uh, it's a book. Uh, it's a document. The word scripture literally means writing. Uh, but there's a couple of uh, points that are worth thinking about. And uh, Peter gives uh, two reasons why he wrote this letter. Uh, the first uh, we find in verses 12 and 13. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. He's writing as a reminder to his readers of what they already know, to refresh their memory. 
As we've seen, this is as we've seen, this is written to people who have already accepted Peter's teaching and accepted it as true. Um, it's addressed in uh, verse one to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. But Peter wants to remind them of what they have already received. This is something we do ourselves, isn't it? We need reminders all the time for things we need to do. Uh, we write down our upcoming appointments, assignment due dates, jobs to be done around the house. Uh, we need reminders for things that we already know because we're so forgetful. It's actually amazing how forgetful we are. We have to write down phone numbers, email addresses, and even though we're not supposed to, we write down our passwords. I have a reminder in my phone to tell me to put the bins out on Wednesday night. I know the bins are collected on Thursday morning. I've been putting them out for years, but I've had to put the reminder in my phone because I've forgotten more than once. That's what Peter is saying here. He's writing to remind us about things we already know so that we don't forget. What he's reminding us of, though, obviously much more important than putting the bins out. Uh, and the second reason Peter gives for writing is that he wants his teaching to persist after his death. Look at verses 13 to 15. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of this in the tent of this body, because I'll know that because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, it doesn't seem as though Peter is particularly concerned about his approaching death. He's kind of matter-of-fact about it. His main concern is for the church and that his teaching, his message, that's the gospel, will persist after his death. He spent his whole life uh, telling uh, other people about Jesus. Ever since he was called to be a follower of Jesus, he's been doing this. And he says he will keep doing this as long as he lives. But he knows that his life is coming to an end and he knows that the church must continue to be reminded after his death. He knows that this can be achieved if they have it in writing. Now that obviously includes this letter of 2 Peter and we can throw his uh, first letter in as well, but what else? Well, we know that Peter is credited as being the source behind Mark's gospel, as we heard in the kids' talk. Uh, and in chapter 3, uh, Peter um, regards the writing of Paul as equal to other scripture. So we can also assume this includes the writing of uh, the other apostles. Uh, and then uh, we have the writing of the Old Testament, which Peter refers to in verses 19 and 21 as the prophetic message and scripture. And so because we have these writings, we have the teaching of Peter and of Paul and the other apostles and the whole history of Israel, the Psalms, Proverbs and Prophets, preserved and available, able to continue to be used to teach, to remind and to encourage us and all people in all places at all times. Because having something written down is a reliable method of preserving it, much more reliable than word of mouth alone, where it can so easily change through being misheard or having some detail left out 
inadvertently or maybe deliberately. It's much more reliable to have it written down. I'm sure you've experienced cases of miscommunication when something said to you is misheard or misunderstood. So it's good that we have the written word because we know we have the same message that the original recipients had and we shouldn't take that for granted. So that's our first point. The Bible, the whole Bible, the Old and New Testaments are written truth. Uh, our second point is that the Bible is eyewitness truth. Peter wants to reassure his readers that what he's saying is not made up, not an invented myth or fairy tale. Let me read again verses 16 to 18. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom, I'm, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. It's clear uh, here that Peter is referring to the transfiguration, the account of which we had as our first reading today. It's also clear that the original recipients uh, of this letter were already familiar with the story because most of the detail is left out. Peter wants again to remind his readers that he and his fellow apostles were witnesses to Jesus, witnesses to his earthly ministry over a period of three or so years. They witnessed his miracles, his teaching, his death and his resurrection. Peter says, we were there. We were with him on the holy mountain. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard the voice. In Mark, you remember, it says the disciples were frightened. Uh, let me read to you again from Mark 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So Peter and the other disciples keep this story to themselves initially because Jesus tells them to in verse 9 and because uh, it says they don't know what it meant in verse 10 and I think also because who would believe a story like that? People would think you were crazy. Let's be honest, it sounds like a cleverly devised story, the exact thing Peter says it's not would be embarrassing to tell this story, especially for Peter, who looks like a bit of a goose when he suggests building three shelters. But if he was embarrassed initially, he isn't anymore. Neither is he confused about the meaning of what he saw 
or about what Jesus said. He knows what it means because he hasn't just seen the preview of Jesus' resurrection, as in the transfiguration. He's seen the real thing. He's seen the risen Jesus in the flesh. Jesus appeared to him and the other apostles and 500 others, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. They saw him. They spoke with him. They ate with him. They touched him. They saw his wounds. They knew it was him. They're no longer under command to keep quiet about what they witnessed. In fact, quite the opposite. Peter and his fellow apostles went to their deaths giving their eyewitness testimony. By the time Peter is writing this letter, James, one of the three who were at the Transfiguration, has already been put to death by Herod. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. But again, the prospect of death is not really a concern to Peter. He's not put off by the threat of death because he knows what he's seen is true. He knows the truth. He was an eyewitness along with his fellow apostles. He knows the truth. He's seen it with his own eyes. He heard the voice from the cloud. He was there when it happened. That's the point Peter's making. The Bible is eyewitness truth. That brings us to our third point, uh, which is that the Bible is God's truth. Peter starts verse 19 by saying, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. He's been speaking of the eyewitness account of himself and his fellow apostles. And now to add to his argument, he says, we also have the prophetic message, and by that he means the Old Testament. The NIV uh, differs a little uh, than some other translations uh, where it says uh, something completely reliable. Other translations have it as made more sure or more certain. And so this could mean a couple of different things, but what I think Peter is saying here is that what we read in the Old Testament is now more certain because we've seen it fulfilled in Jesus. That, I think, is the point, that the Old Testament is made more certain because we have seen it fulfilled in Jesus. Look what Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Uh, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And again on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So we have God's truth in the Old and New Testaments as one united story, confirming each other's claims, confirming that Jesus is the fulfilment of the predictions made in the Old Testament. Verse 19 is really linking uh, these two points together, but Jesus makes this point that the Bible is God's truth much more clearly in verses 20 to 21, where he says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. The prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Above all, he says, that is, first of all, or most importantly of all, no prophecy of scripture 
came about by the prophet's own interpretation or will. This is not a man-made creation. It's not an invention of man. No prophet just decided on their own to do a bit of prophesying because they felt like it. The Bible is not just people having a look around them and writing down what they think. The Bible is God's interpretation. It has its origin in his mind and in his will. It's God's message spoken by humans, or more accurately, through humans. It gives us this idea of the double authorship of the Bible, which is a bit tricky to get your head around. Uh, I like what John Stott said. He put it much better than I ever could. Uh, So let me read what he said. Uh, The same scripture which, which says, The mouth of the Lord has spoken also says that God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets. Out of, how, out of whose mouth did scripture come then? God's or man's? The only biblical answer is both. Indeed, God spoke through human authors in such a way that his words were simultaneously their words and their words were simultaneously his. Scripture is equally the word of God and the words of human beings. Better, it is the word of God through the words of human beings. Thus, on the one hand, God spoke, determining what he wanted to say, yet without smothering the personality of the human authors. On the other hand, human beings spoke, using their faculties freely, yet without distorting the truth which God was speaking through them. I was trying to think uh, how I might illustrate this concept. The best I, best I could come up with was uh, if a bunch of us took our canoes down to the river. Uh, we could use our oars to paddle from one bank to another. Uh, we could navigate around obstacles uh, as, we, as we needed. We could slow down at certain points in the river and look at different points of interest. But all that time, the river, the current, would be pushing us along in the same direction with the same destination. And so we have the same principle with the Bible. Although the Bible is written by humans, it's God's message. It's God's truth. That's Peter's final point, and he says it's his most important point. So then we've seen that the Bible is written truth. It's eyewitness truth. Most importantly of all, it's God's truth. Where does that leave us? We know that the truth is good. If we have the truth, though, what do we do with it? Well, Peter helpfully tells us uh, in verse 19, the second part of verse 19, he says we should pay attention. We have the truth. Pay attention to it. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place, Peter says. You might have heard that we're living in the age of uh, distraction uh, caused in large part because we have these jolly mobile phones that we just can't help looking at all the time. Uh, It's no wonder we get distracted. We have instant access to everything that's happening all around the world, all the time, immediately. Uh, We have apps that are designed to keep our attention, algorithms that just want to make sure we keep scrolling. But even without these phones, we're prone to distraction. We always have been. 
includes all the mundane things in life, what's happening at work, what am I going to cook for tea this week. But we also know there's much more nefarious things to draw our attention away, much darker things. We have a light shining in this dark place. We need to pay attention to it. In this age of distraction, it's more important now than it ever was for us to pay attention. We need to pay attention to the truth in the Bible. So I'd like to finish with one final thought, and that is if you find reading the Bible difficult, whether it's difficult finding the time or if you find it difficult to understand, or maybe both, uh, I want to reassure you that you're not alone. Look around the room, you'll see people with the same struggle. There's one right here. Uh, and so if that is you, then I want to encourage you, first of all, not to give up. But also, you don't have to struggle alone. We're much, str we're much stronger when we're uh, struggling along together, helping each other out. It's one of the great blessings of being part of a church. We were never meant to be doing this on our own. We're all on this journey together. So can I commend you, if you're not part of one already, uh, to join uh, one of our midweek small groups? Because I've personally found uh, being part of a small group, meeting every week to read the Bible and pray together, very encouraging, a great encouragement. If you can't join a small group, maybe you'd consider meeting one-on-one -on -one with someone to read the Bible. Meeting together and reading the Bible is a great way for us to encourage each other to keep paying attention. Let me pray. Uh, our Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in it. Uh, we pray that you would help us to pay attention to what it says. Amen.